The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Welcome to the Faculty Futures Lab podcast. My name is Joanna Brooks and I'm the Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University. And today I'm here to talk with some expert guests about something that's weighing very heavily on our faculty here and I know at campuses around the world. It's how in the heck do we research right now? Research, scholarship, creative activity under extraordinary pressure due to unprecedented disruption of higher ed in global pandemics. So with me today is a treasure to the SDSU campus, our newly minted Associate Vice President of Research Advancement, John Crockett, who founded the uh, Grant and Research Enterprise Workshop, we call it GRU, a few years back, to take researchers you know, through the grant writing process in a very um, supported way um, and really help them connect um, to funded research institutions and, and improve their success rates. So John, welcome. Thank you. And also with me on the call today are uh, Sarah Elkind, Professor of History and Center, a Director of our Center for Teaching and Learning. Sarah. Hi, happy to be here. And for the first time with us is Yusuf Ozturk, who is the Interim Associate Dean of the College of Engineering. Hello. And finally, Steve Gill, Associate Professor in Accounting. Hey, Joanna, welcome everyone. Hi, Steve. Hey, Steve, just real quick, how are the researchers in Fowler College of Business feeling these days? You guys got it uh, all figured out? Uh, absolutely not. In fact, there's a <laughs> lot we haven't figured out. Yeah. So, and it's not just the research questions we're trying to answer this time. Well, oh, it's everything is, um, this is a profound growth opportunity as, as we like to call it. So John, first to you. Um, what are you hearing? How are people feeling? This is the point where I'm saying, will you please reassure everyone that they're not the only one whose research is completely fricocta? Yeah, uh, everyone's research has been upended and everyone personally and emotionally is feeling incredibly frazzled. Um, and so I think one of the things that we are trying to address initially, especially with early career faculty, but with everyone, um, is just helping them manage their own expectations of themselves. Um, we all are here because we're type A detail-oriented micromanagers. I mean, that's, I think, a close approximation of a general faculty profile. Absolutely. And um, we can't do it. We can't do uh, hardly any of the things that um, we wanted to or expected to do this year. And, and so just um, helping people, as you say, understand that they're not the only ones going through this um, and that we, even at the institutional level, are, are sensitive to the things that are happening with and to them, um, I think has been a big role for us during this time. To be clear, it's not just an SDSU problem either, right? This is, you're hearing this from colleagues at other institutions. 
Oh, uh, you know, nationally, and it really doesn't matter, um, you know, what type of institution you're at, whether it's an SDSTU or, you know, our colleagues up on the Mesa at UCSD or, you know, one of the other CSU systems that, um, you know, maybe is more focused on undergraduate teaching um, across the nation, across the board. Um, everyone is scared and frustrated and anxious and, um, you know, also worried about the world. This is a point in time at which we wish more research were happening, especially on these topical issues like public health, you know, um, climate change, uh, social inequity. So, yeah. yeah. What are you hearing from the federal level and from other, some of the other major funders? Yeah, um, we're hearing really actually positive things. Um, you know, they have sort of expanded their concept of being flexible with research and with faculty. Um, you know, we're seeing actually in some ways them go through the same experiences that we are on campus where timelines become uncertain or compress. Um, you know, it's very difficult for them to predict the future, right? There's, you know, predictions are really hard, especially if they're about the future. But they continue to see our faculty and our institutions, I think, as real partners, not only for the COVID-related research, but for the foundational and fundamental research, I think, that they recognize has to be a through line um, through this experience that, that we're going through. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're also stressed. Um, but, you know, I think really looking to universities and the researchers for new ideas and leadership and to continue moving things forward as much as we can. So what kind of advice are you giving right now? I mean, you gave us some already in terms of, look, we are here because we're meticulous, driven problem solvers. <laughs> um, and this is a problem that's just bigger than us. It just yeah. is. So, you know, what kinds of advice are you giving right now to people who are or want to be research active, scholarship active? Yeah, so, I mean, there's the emotional research. I mean, the emotional recommendations, which is essentially calm down. Um, if you can give yourself permission to be a little bit less productive during this time, um, give yourself permission to do that. Um, you know, manage your health. Go for a walk, um, you know, with a mask. Um, you know, try to keep yourself sane. In on research elements, things are still moving forward. Um, and actually, we're encouraging people to write up those ideas, like send them in, either solicited or unsolicited. Programs are still available. And the timing of the opportunities um, really has been extended so that if you have an idea, you know, pursue it. We're seeing different types of um, interests on our campus, like um, for things like the major research instrumentation at NSF. Um, you know, people have taken a moment to build teams on campus and think about what they will need to do the next phase of their research, you know, when they're able to buy something again and get things um, into campus. So, you know, trying to balance those two things, again, in the context of transitioning to online learning and, you know, putting up videos and, um, you know, trying to be a socially responsible citizen as well. Um, but those are the two sorts of recommendations that we, we talk to people about. And, and those are wonderful 
especially if you don't have school-aged children at home. So if you do have school-aged children at home, take all that advice and multiply it by two or maybe four or five. It's just, (laughs) I talk to people every day and it's just a lot. Um, But I want to push you just a little bit. So that's good short-term advice, but you know, um, I'm a long-term thinker, right? I'm a humanist. I work in an unfunded field. Okay. And you know, those of us who do work in unfunded fields know that funding comes and funding goes. And the way we've developed research conceptually as an enterprise at the university, um, at most, you know, research one or research one aspirant universities is tied to a particular expectation of federal funding. And it's also tied to certain assumptions about the role sponsored research plays in funding the university, which eh, if you really do the math, it's not necessarily revenue positive, right? Um, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It's just not a cash flow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, longer term work with me, like, is there any prospect? Is there any discussion among people like you about COVID transforming the way we conceive of and the terms under which we do research moving forward? You know, will we come out of this in a world that's changed and will we have to change as researchers, scholars, and artists too? Um, I would love to be able to answer that unreservedly, yes. Um, oh, yes. No, why not? Why not? <laughs> um, um, agile, agile. But, right, right. But, there, but there, there are two sorts of things going on. You know, the first one is, is just the, the, the massive inertia, which is in the funding research enterprise that you kind of refer to. So if we just say, like, there's a lot of inertia in the system, it's most likely to be very similar to the way that it was yesterday. You know, tomorrow it will be very similar, kind of like the weather. Now, that being said, we are seeing all sorts of um, kind of pilots on how the research enterprise and how research funding is distributed. So, for example... Um, you know, there's a small but vocal group of, of people like me and, you know, including me that um, are advocating for lottery systems of distributing funding. So one of the things that we saw around COVID is that the people who are already super successful and really well funded just got like a bunch more money yeah, right. out of COVID it's to like do the things they've always exacerbated been Exacerbated structural inequalities yeah. on all fronts. And the NIH has published this data as well, which is, you know, after a, a certain first cut, the, the scores that an application get are not really correlated to their impact, you know, how many publications they get or how many citations. And so there's a perfectly reasonable question to ask, well, like, if this pool of applications is fundable, let's just distribute them by lottery. And allow that to increase diversity, you know, demographic diversity, allow it to increase diversity at career stage, um, you know, and still get the same level of impact and productivity that we might get out of that. And I think in my field, as with all fields, everything is on the table at this moment in time. Um, And so we're seeing things like that. No, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, and one more question too, and then we're going to open it up to our our, um, our guests, our visitors, our friends, our colleagues. Um, travel, right, has yeah. been, I mean, high, a time for enormous rethink on research travel. 
Um, does it make sense increasingly for universities to actually hire people who, especially when you're talking about like, you know, biomes closer to home, populations closer to home. Uh Um, You know, we used to proceed on this assumption that every university across the face of the earth needed someone who specialized in each continent, Uh which incurred massive amounts of um, uh, carbon as we jetted about to all these places and the conventions that we thought were so essential to do in person. Um, So what are you seeing in terms of bringing the research enterprise closer to home? Yeah, I think so. The, so the thing that I'm seeing most, and this is related to sort of my technical field of, of you know, continental margin oceanography, is kind of an amped up reliance on collaborations, you know, the virtualization that we're doing right here, and like actual advances in sensors, like people rethinking how they deploy sensors and, you know, maybe we don't have to go to Africa, you know, twice a year to uh, survey the presence of alligators in our river. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe there's another way, you know, to, to do that. And I think in research, like in everything, it's just supercharged people thinking about what they can do virtually. Um, Now Mm -hmm. I and our colleagues, um, even at SDSU will, We'll talk about the threats of, you know, telepressure and kind of the visual cues of being on Zoom all the time, which... Uh, They're exhausting. Add, add to, don't reduce the level of anxiety. They that make we're me on. like myself less. They make <laughs> me like other feeling. people less. Not you. I know, I've never been so tired of, like, looking at my own oh. picture. <laughs> but, so, I think for sure... You know, and, and the deployment of those sensors is good for not having to drive down the street as as well as like not having to fly across the country. So yeah. I think, you know, the more people think about how to do that, um, you know, the, the long reverberating tail it will have through this experience. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, and with that, let's open it up. So let's start with probably the most, um, you know, we have three different fields on the call, right, in our... Um, in our research areas. So the most conventionally and the most, you know, traditional standard, high-funded research area in from Dean Osterk is yours. How are people in your college feeling and how are they coping? Well, uh, the people in my college uh, have been actually writing more grant proposals than they have been getting funded. Uh, the funding with the uh, NSF is uh, becoming extremely challenging even if you're recommended, that doesn't mean you will get funded. So there is some like, this is basically what happened to us last week. We were recommended, but we did not get funded because of the same reason John mentioned, you know, there is X number of people that are funded and the distribution at that point, basically the distribution of funding is not really based on lottery. There is, you know, people who receive funding before receives it more. So I think in terms of basically my college, people have been uh, extremely productive. You know, there's some slowdown in the number of graduate students. As you know, our research relies on graduate students and existence of graduate students Mm -hmm. physically in the labs. Mm -hmm. And this year we are missing a big deal on that that opportunity because of the 
uh, most graduate students defer their uh, their you know uh, participation or their arrival. Uh, beside this, you know the uh, COVID made grants basically in particular areas more uh, attractive, or you know that sort of like supposedly it shifted from engineering towards more. Uh, public health or health sciences. There's uh, there's a shift there. So there's, I think, uh, that is affecting us a little bit. Uh, but beyond this, engineering seems to be doing okay. You know, we're basically receiving funding. Our research program is growing. Uh, if we get back to bringing the graduate students back and increase the number of uh, PhD students, uh, uh, and the funding gets distributed more evenly in different areas, you know, we will be happier, but we can't complain under the circumstances as well. Right, right. Steve, what's it look like in your world, Ballard College of Business, accounting department? Yeah, so there, there are a, uh, a, a couple of departments in the college that tend to rely pretty heavily on capital markets data. And so those really, they're, they're not impacted in a negative way in terms of their ability to continue to do research in their field. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit more like you discussed earlier. The, there's a little bit of tension now between the shift to online instruction, virtual instruction, and trying to balance that against your, your research load, especially for the, the newly untenured uh, faculty, for sure. Now, the, for some of the others, uh, like management and marketing, where it's not uncommon to be out on the street uh, with your clipboard, um, you know, that's clearly been impacted in a, in a difficult way. And, um, you know, I think though, you know, you can make lemon lemonade from, from some of these lemons, right? There's this really great opportunity in the management field to look at the way uh, organizations can manage their, their staffing, their personnel mm -hmm. in a virtual uh, setting, right. which we've really like talk about a field study uh, right. that that's gone crazy, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, suddenly a large percentage of the U.S. workforce, uh, especially the white collar workforce, is working from home, and so right. Right. there's a chance to examine some elements like that. Uh, but there's no there's no replacing going down to the courthouse and asking people to complete your survey at this point. Right. So, uh, you know, you can gather social science data through the Internet. Uh, it's a little bit like polling data. You never know exactly how much you can trust it, but uh, it's out there. So, you know, I think I think we're continuing to forge ahead. As you mentioned, we're not, you know, we tinker in funding. But for the most part, the Fowler College business doesn't do a lot of grant funded research. <laughs> and so uh, it it. it it really stems from just continuing to push ahead with what we've been doing and try not to get distracted by the environment we're working in. Oy vey. Yeah, well, that's not easy. I want to come back to that in a second. Um, but one of the things you said was interesting and aligned with something Yusuf said in terms of we're seeing the funding in the short term, at least, shift to those immediately applicable fields, right? And Steve, you talked about how this is an opportunity if you're in a position to, to pivot really quickly and to take in, you know, study the spot we're in. And I think in the past, maybe we thought of research as like, okay, we do this research that lays a foundation for a very sequential, organized, you know, line of inquiry carried out in a discipline. And I wonder if these new emergent structure, you know, these new emergent phenomena will, will be, you know, where our research 
is going to chart more increasingly too. Like you acquire your basic knowledge and then you sort of pivot as needs change and, and your research could be even more useful. What do you think? Well, there, like I said, there's no question that the shift to a virtual workforce is just a ripe area. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a function of taking advantage of that opportunity if it avails itself to you in some meaningful way. You know, there aren't a lot of organizations that are, are generally real. Uh, let's just say they, they tend to be a little reticent about letting researchers in to look at human resource data and application data and hiring data, recruiting data. And it could be that this is the chance to squeeze your foot in that door because let's face it, we don't really have a wealth of virtual recruiting data. And so like we can partner now with these organizations and say, look, we're not, we're not dictating that this is going to be the way business operates. Even a year from now, uh, but we're going to see more organizations functioning this way than than before. And so, hey, let's partner, let's get together, let's do this work together. And we, we you know, when we attract funding in the College of Business, it is often through private industry, through corporate industry that is interested in discovering some of the answers to some of the organizational issues they have uh, and doing that in an independent third party way. Right. And so, John, are you bullish on uh, applied and translational research? I, I actually am. We usually contextualize it slightly differently when we talk to faculty about their pivots. And, and the conversation is around, you know, thinking about the five tenets of newsworthiness, mm -hmm. you know, which are right. things like timeliness, significance, you know, prominence, um, proximity, um, and so these, those principles, when, when faculty begin engaging those concepts, um, sometimes it unlocks this story yep. about their research. Yep. That, of course, in the context of COVID, we have been encouraging them to do that for COVID, but it's a practice and a principle that is core to research and scholarly communication. And so this has just been you know, a better opportunity to um, provide COVID as an example of how you, you might wow. want to use these principles, but overall elevate your capacity to tell your story, which right. exactly. you know, really is critical for all of us right now. And speaking of, we have an environmental historian on the Zoom and what a moment for environmental historians of the West, Professor Elkind. Um, how is the research world looking in the humanities and social sciences? How are people feeling? And, and you know, um, can you pivot your research to, uh, to help us deal with these wildfires, my friend? Solve that, please. Uh, I, have, I have pivoted my research to deal with these wildfires, but it's a pivot that took place a while ago yeah. where, um, where I took my expertise in urban environmental infrastructure and kind of tucked it away in a corner a little bit and started teaching a global environmental history course that does that, that was actually inspired by the last really big round of fires in San Diego. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm turning that course into a, a, a book. So I'm, I'm taking, I, I, instead of waiting until the research was done to bring it into the classroom, I've been trying to use my uh, class exactly. 
to refine my ideas, figure out my perspective, explore the literature, work out the kinks, figure out what the book is about, because mm-hmm. my books are never about what I thought they were about when I started them. Yep. Um, and that's why we say in the humanities, our classrooms are our labs. Yeah. Our classrooms, classrooms are our labs. Classrooms and library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Library how is the lab? How are people feeling in the humanities, social sciences with the compromised access to their archives? Freaked out yeah. and, and really impaired. And um, the compromised access is the, the library, because of budget cuts, has had to rely more and more on electronic services and on interlibrary loan. And for example, the, the project that I'm working on now, about 70% of the materials I use for that research I get through interlibrary loan. Wow, that's high. And it's, but not high in the history department. Really? Yeah, yeah, really kind of typical in some, for some people in some fields. And, um, and I would say, uh, I would say high, but not, but not unusually so. Mm-hmm. And so with COVID, interlibrary loan is not functioning or wasn't functioning. I haven't looked lately. And so it's not just that those of us who do archival research can't travel to our archives where the primary sources are, it's that we can't get the secondary resources either because the library collections are smaller. The facilities, the facilities in the humanities, are, our financial needs are relatively small. We need a quiet place to work. We need a lot of books. We need a computer. And, uh, and we need a library. And the library bringing back curbside pickup this summer was phenomenal. And we're incredibly, and our, my colleagues in the humanities are incredibly grateful to the librarians for doing that. Uh, but office access is becoming a real issue mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's, there's so many people that in, uh, in, as CTL director that I'm talking to who face even more substantial problems, and Steve mentioned some of this, with people whose research depends on talking to individuals on the street, anybody who does human subjects research, Oh yeah. the education professors whose work is all based on direct observation of K through 12 classrooms, Yeah. what do they do? Yeah. John, what are you hearing from people who do human subjects? Yeah, you know, we've had to continue doing that work in the context of the guidance from the county and, you know, what's sort of deemed appropriate or safe. Um, And the factors that we've considered that have come into place are, you know, are really things like, well, research where the participants may be damaged by not participating. And, you know, for some of that, you might think about um, our audiology clinicians or, you know, maybe some of our... um, uh, young age um, autism spectrum disorder interventions where time is of the essence for you know a demonstrable human health outcome um, for some of the other ones where the participants wouldn't be in a situation like that you know Steve's example some of the education examples you know some of Sarah's examples um, you know, it's much more difficult to make the argument that those have to go on now. And, and so we've tended to adopt whatever the guidance is of the, of the county in those cases. It's a very challenging and frustrating um, situation, um, but we're trying to do the best we can. 
Well, as we head into our last few minutes together, I want to go back to that issue of distraction. And, you know, um, Yusuf, you've mentioned for some people, this is an extraordinarily productive time, right? Like for some academics, it is a dream to stay at home, avoid all humans, do <laughs> nothing, just do my research and then maybe watch some Netflix and eat something, maybe. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I want each of us to kind of close out by thinking of someone who's listening to this um, conversation who is a parent of a five-year-old, who is a parent of a five-year-old, and they're not tenured yet. How do we talk to our colleagues who are in this position where, you know, or maybe even a three and a five-year-old, or a five and a seven-year-old? You know, we have plenty of colleagues, male and female, but especially female colleagues, because that's just the way nature works sometimes, who are in this position and they want to hear something reassuring from senior scholars. They want some protection. Um, I always say to them, hey, look, you're not the only people on the planet facing this. The institution that penalizes you for COVID is a very foolish institution and will lose you to somewhere that's far, far wiser. Um, but we don't want to lose our people. So, so what do we say? You know, when daring do and um, careful time management aren't enough. We'll start with you, Steve. What advice would you give to someone with a five, seven, three-year-old who's trying to do this? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, I'll tell you, Joanne, I, I, you know, I think in many respects, it's stay the course, right? It, it's somehow we have to find a way to keep forging ahead and you just need to rebalance the workload that you're engaged in to fit the life you have to deal with. And suddenly in a COVID world, life is far more intrusive on your work than I think it ever was before. Oh, yeah. oh, and you, you just have to compromise that level of approach that you give to, to whatever it is that you're spending your time and your efforts on so that you don't completely make yourself crazy. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's very easy to try to maintain the same level of productivity. And there, there's a sense in most people, I think, who seek out this kind of work, uh, they have this sort of ambition that drives them to continue to work at the same pace that they normally would. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think really taking a really introspective look at what it is you need to spend your time on, yeah. knowing that, you know, we all have our fingers crossed that this is going to end and we all want it to end sooner than it probably is going to. Mm -hmm. But all the same, during navigating this difficult time means being a little bit more relevant about the, the, the other forms of distraction you have going mm -hmm. on in your life. And I, I'm not using distraction as a negative term. In this case, it's a very positive term, right? These are things that, that are going to matter to you a lot more after yeah. 12 months, 18 months, however long the, the COVID pandemic lasts. And so, you know, our junior colleagues double down, focus, 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 stay the course. Is there anything we can do as associate professors, professors, deans, associate deans, you know, to cover for them? Like, <laughs> you know, would it be feasible to walk into your department meeting and say, I think that we should uh, relieve assistant professors of the following committee duties? Just, just blanket, you know, are, are we willing to, 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 you know, take responsibility like that and shelter our junior colleagues? What do you think, Sarah? Could you walk into your department meeting and say, I got an idea. All assistant professors get to drop at least one committee. I have two ideas. Okay. One is all assistant professors get to drop one committee. This is not an official and university policy statement. This is a wish. No, no, this is a wish. <laughs> this is, if, if I were a king, dream. if I were king, 
That's what I would do. And then the other thing that I would do, and I would actually really urge our colleagues strongly to think about this, is consider shifting of those departments who don't already do it, consider shifting service responsibility allocation from volunteerism to rotation. Ding, 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 ding. Some some people have already done that, but we can do a lot to relieve the people who take on too much and have too many responsibilities by just saying, we're going to put everybody in an alphabetical rota and we're just going to rotate through. Everyone's got to do their turn, shoulder to the wheel. Okay. Go ahead, Yusuf. So last year, I basically, like I had the same concerns as Sarah when I started this in the colleges as a new policy document that I call as service policy document. And uh, this is primarily triggered by the fact that certain faculty avoids, you know, the committee work. And then, you know, uh, well, and then, you know, it falls basically onto the shoulders of uh, faculty who cannot say no. And I, I think, uh, you know, and there is, you know, committees that meets every week, you know, for, you know, two hours. And then there is, you know, potentially three, four hours of work for that committee every week, you know, like, like undergraduate curriculum committee. And uh, there is committees that uh, barely ever meets, you know, I mean, like maybe once they met when the committee was established, the faculty, you know, as a, in the college, I'm basically trying to balance this now. Uh, pretty soon, just like uh, we have a workload policy document, we will have a service policy document that will, uh, you know, ask faculty members to balance the service load. As a junior, you really shouldn't be taking, you know, like a, a too much load. Right. And you shouldn't be afraid to speak up, to say to your chair director, hey, this doesn't feel like a good assignment for me. I, this is a critical, irreplaceable time to build my research trajectory. And really, if you're an associate professor or professor, you know, we probably need your help being on the lookout to protect your junior colleagues. It's only fair. They're coming through at a time unlike the ones we came through at. There's just no comparing it. All right, John. And so, you know, I'm mindful of our time together. So, over to you. Let's pretend I'm a chemist mm-hmm. with a seven and a five-year-old, and I want to do chemistry. I want to do bench freaking science, and I'm I'm really this is not fair, and the world's not fair right now. Like you know, we won't even get into the homeschooling burdens. What do you say? Yeah. So first of all, teach your five-year-old to watch glassware. That's really going <laughs> to amplify your productivity. Um, Could be in some child labor regulations, but we'll see. Okay, good, good. Let's start there. Um, look, the, the Office of, of Research and Innovation, we don't influence departmental policy. We don't influence mm-hmm. college policy. But what I can tell you is that um, both from a professional and a personal level, we are allies of those faculty. Um you know, we are intimately aware of the differential stress and pressures that are going to accrue, particularly to women faculty at this time. We have seen this happen before when NIH originally offered stop the clock, which is essentially that women stop the clock and care for children, 
and then stop the clock and get out like 20 additional publications. Yep. And we, there's a small group of us that have been doing this work, <laughs> yourself included, Joanna, um, on the West Coast and, and in other places that are hammering away, particularly at NSF and NIH, to put some money behind what we know is anecdotally true. So we're using the same tool, like, ah, just stop the clock, like RTP won't be any big deal, right. like just, just give you another year to reach tenure. But that's also a year more until you get a promotion exactly. and a raise. And so we feel these challenges intimately because we have seen what happens at the departmental yeah. level when equity and justice is really applied mm. in terms of elevating both scholarship and research activity. So right. we are, our office is very much incentivized to um, keep our eyes on this particularly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and at each individual faculty's experience level. Well, so, thank you for that. Then everyone should take heart in that. And in terms of, like you said, policy, right, where the rubber hits the road, I know Sarah is bringing up with our Senate Faculty Affairs Committee a discussion about how do we do RTP in the in the time of COVID, and I think she could probably benefit from talking to you and getting getting your perspective on it, just because it's not it it, it is only one kind of answer to extend the clock another year another year. At some point, we probably need to reframe our metrics of value just a little bit, just to say, did this person continue to show the traits that are important to a professional scholar? during this time? Not did they hit the same outcomes, because they're not going to, but did they continue to demonstrate the kind of dedication and focus within their context that, that could be feasibly expected? Anyway, no answers, but just a good conversation. And I hope we have substantial conversations like amongst our colleagues everywhere on campus um, as we continue to soldier on through this thing. But for now, my thank yous go out to John Crockett, AVP of Research Advancement. Yay, John. Thank you for being a good ally and for fighting the good fight. To our CTL director, Sarah Elkine, professor of history, interim associate dean, Yusuf Oster from the College of Engineering, and uh, associate professor of accountancy, Steve Gill. Thank you, guys. Hang in there. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All right, everyone stay safe. Thank you.